Welcome to Sex, Body and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. After a horrific and tragic Amtrak train crash in Philadelphia in 2015, eight passengers died and many were severely injured. Gerilyn Ritter was on that train. She was not expected to survive. She works for one of the largest healthcare pharmaceutical companies in the world who actually helped her to heal with their support, which took years of emotional and physical therapy. I've worked with Gerilyn for many years, helping women around the world as mothers with their healthcare. This is her incredible and inspirational story. Welcome to the show, Gerilyn Ritter. Hello, everyone. I am so, so excited to have the incredible Gerilyn Ritter on the show. You've already heard what an amazing leader she is in the healthcare space. But we are here today to talk about something that happened to Gerilyn a number of years ago, and she is still recovering from. This is the issue of trauma. When something devastating happens to you, and the incredible results resilience that we find and have along that journey. And there's nobody better to tell her own story than Gerilyn herself. She has just authored a book, Bone by Bone, and I would encourage you all to read it. It's extremely inspiring. And Gerilyn and I have worked together many, many years now in our mutual quest of improving the world by making sure that families have access to healthcare. So I'm sure that Gerilyn did not think that she would be having her own healthcare journey that she would need to focus on so much. So welcome, Gerilyn. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm I'm really delighted to be here. Now, you and I just caught up and I heard your incredible story, which I did not really fully understand, but uh, thank you for telling it. You were on a train coming back from or passing through Philadelphia, I understand, and there was a head-on collision. What happened? You know, the thing that always strikes me about the accident was how incredibly ordinary a day it was. Just a business trip I had taken literally a hundred times. I'd taken that train, New Jersey down to Washington, Washington back up to New York, New Jersey. And the train pulled out of Philadelphia and sped up to 106 miles an hour and derailed on a curve designed for a maximum of 50 Eight people were killed and hundreds injured. And do you remember thinking, wow, this train's going really fast? Or were you oblivious to what was going on? Because you you sort of woke up in the hospital, right? That's exactly right. I had stood up to get something to read out of my bag on the baggage rack above my head. And so I did recognize that the train was going fast. And it was rocking. And I was annoyed because I had to hold on to the baggage rack and I I couldn't reach inside my bag. And then we started tipping. And Mm. my first thought was, it can't be. Like, trains don't tip. And, you know, there's that slow motion reality where you realize you are tipping. The train is actually tipping over. And the sound of my scream is the last thing I remember. Wow. I I can't possibly imagine. And my my heart goes out to all of the families and all of the people who either injured or lost their lives. It must have been horrendous, kind of the image of 9-11 comes into my head, right? Where you just have this sheer panic, where you know something awful is happening, and then black. 
So you woke up in the hospital and what had happened to you? I was crushed. (laughs) I was crushed. I still don't know who found me, but I was in the first car and the pictures of the accident, that car doesn't even look like a train car. It's just a debris field. It's not a train car tipped over on its side. It is just a debris field. So Mm -hmm. my chest was completely crushed, all the bones in my ribs on the left side, All of my abdominal organs were thrown up into my chest, so ruptured my diaphragm, my stomach was above my heart, my colon was under my armpit, my spleen was bleeding uncontrollably, and my pelvis was the worst. It was actually broken in half. The right side was not connected to the left side. They call it an open pelvic ring fracture. And then I had a giant penetrating trauma. Something had, you know, penetrated my left hip. So on top of that, that that left side of my body was open and dirty. Mm. I broke some vertebra. I broke some extremities of my arms. But really, it was the the injuries to my chest, my pelvis, mm. and my abdomen that were quite wow. life-threatening. And how were you stabilized? I would imagine they were giving you incredible drugs, right, for the pain. I mean, you must have been in... Um, could you breathe? Were you on a ventilator? Uh, you know, what was the situation? I could not breathe. Uh, I was on a ventilator for about eight days. They did surgery and they actually put plates across my ribs. My my rib bones were broken into so many pieces. They had to kind of piece them back together with metal plates to make new ribs so that I could breathe. Early on, you know, they had to immediately put me on a ventilator, get me breathing, put a chest tube in me to to drain all the blood and fluid out of my chest. Mm. I had immediate surgery. I was life flighted to a level one trauma center and I was immediately taken in for about a seven hour surgery. And the next day I had another seven hour surgery where mm-hmm. they were literally just trying to stabilize me, put me back together, put some big pins through my through my lower back to hold my pelvis together. Mm-hmm. It was quite extraordinary. Mm, I don't wow. remember any of that, though. I was unconscious for several days. Yeah. So you had a number of surgeries whilst you were still unconscious. And then yes. when you woke up from this and they told you what had happened to you, did they give you details of all the things that had gone wrong? Or was that sort of an ongoing process of discovery for you? It was both. I remember opening my eyes. I'd been having so many dreams dreams of being a child, dreams of Mm. of playing with my kids, and dreams of being in the hospital. And very Mm. gradually, the other dreams faded away, and the hospital dream kept coming back. (laughs) And it was a Mm -hmm. really slow process of realization when I realized this wasn't a dream. And I opened my eyes, and one of my brothers was leaning over me, and I tried to speak, but I was on a ventilator, and I was immobilized. I was in a cervical collar. I was in traction, so I couldn't speak, I couldn't move, I didn't know where I was. And it was blink once for yes, blink two for no. Do you want to know what happened to you? Blink once. Wow. So I was given a high-level overview, but I was so out of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I I was in and out for several days. Mm -hmm. I never, it was quite a while till I truly understood the Mm -hmm. magnitude of my injuries. Mm -hmm. And when you did finally understand the magnitude of your injuries, how did you feel? Like, what was the first sort of thought that came into your head? Initially, tremendous gratitude, tremendous gratitude. Mm. I had learned through my family around me that 
so many people were lost in the accident. And we were just so grateful I was alive. My family had been told by the trauma surgeon that I was likely not to survive and that they needed to come quickly if they wanted to say goodbye. And my brother packed a dark suit for my funeral. So Mm -hmm. we were just so grateful I was alive. Mm. And that sustained us in those early weeks. Wow. You know, and being a mother and a daughter and a cousin and a friend, I I realize how traumatic that must have also been for your family, especially your husband, who you've told me that he's been just the most incredible support to you and your children, obviously. Was there any help given to them too? Because I would imagine that it was incredibly difficult for them as as the caregiver also. It really was, and in particular because my husband saw a news flash that the train had derailed, or a train had derailed. He didn't know it was mine, but he started calling me. I wasn't answering. He had about a nine-hour saga, driving all over Philadelphia, going to the crash site, going hospital to hospital. My sons were 8, 12, and 15 at the time. They knew I was missing, and they knew that my husband couldn't find me. So all night long, my young sons were calling hospitals, I'm looking for my mom. Mm -hmm. So that extraordinary experience, I think, made it even more traumatic because they went through a very long time of fearing the worst. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, at the time, you were in a very senior position at Merck the pharmaceutical company. And you had told me that they had been so incredibly supportive about you obviously taking the time that you needed to leave. And I don't know whether I ever told you this, Geraldine, but you are one of the the leaders in the healthcare industry who I've always respected so much. You know, we've done some incredible things together with, again, our joint mission of focusing on healthcare and changing the world. But going through something like this And even thinking that life could go back to normal, also in the workplace, must have been something that you are also thinking about constantly as you're lying there helpless in the hospital. Absolutely. It was so extraordinary because I loved my job. I loved leading the philanthropic programs that we did around the world. And on any given month, I might be walking through the urban slums in New Delhi yeah. or, or you know, walking through a, a, a semi-rural area in Uganda, but I might also be leading a boardroom in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. or in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And to go from traveling constantly and, and living just a very, very full and busy life yeah. to literally not being able to speak, to move, you know, I, I couldn't drive for well over a year. I had to ask my husband for everything. Mm-hmm. For months, he had to take me to the restroom. Oh. That dynamic, losing every bit of your autonomy, your agency, was yeah. really, really hard. And I yeah. was in complete denial about how long it would last. <laughs> yeah. Now, on that subject, how many surgeries did you end up having? And are you done with your surgeries now? So... 
I don't think I'll ever be done. And I have come to accept that. My body will never be the same. It will never be normal (laughs) or fully healthy. And I'll probably also always have pain, I'm afraid. I have had well over a dozen trips to the operating room. Some of them were mega surgeries where they did four or five major procedures. So if you're counting major surgical procedures, I'm up above 30. And unfortunately, I have another one scheduled next month. Uh, I, mm. I kind of joke like I'm sort of like a used car at this point. Regular maintenance <laughs> is necessary. <laughs> yeah. and I'm really glad I don't look like a train wreck because you the don't. scars are on my torso. Yeah. But don't lift the hood because there's a lot of masking wow. tape and bailing wire. <laughs> so they say that there are different stages of, of grief and trauma. Did you go through those stages and what were they? I really did. I mentioned that we were just so grateful in the beginning. My doctors mm-hmm. told me they had no medical explanation for how my body could have absorbed that much force to yeah. do what it did to my pelvis and my chest. And I didn't end up with a brain injury. They said, mm-hmm. I don't understand it. So we mm-hmm. were just filled with gratitude. But as the reality set in, I was calling my boss every six weeks, you know, just a few more weeks, I yeah. think, you know, just another <laughs> month. Yeah, I rejected the idea that this was life-changing. I thought it was a blip, and it yeah. wasn't. And I, I just, it took me a while to realize and accept mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And you can only be grateful for pain for so long. Yeah, And so I really did hit a wall in a period of depression mm-hmm. that I had to, I think, grieve what I yeah. had lost before yeah. I could get better. Yeah. And and what was the time frame? I think you mentioned like two or three years in general. Yeah. I was not back to work for uh, two years and three months. And then I went back very part-time mm-hmm. and occasionally had to go back out for more surgery. But I gradually built back up to wow. full-time over the next couple of years. Mm. That's just an incredible story. I mean, you're like superwoman. Um, you really are. <laughs> So you had mentioned that your husband had to take you to the bathroom, which I can't possibly imagine how humiliating and degrading that is, and and also what an incredible hero he is for doing it. But your relationship survived. And how has that been, honestly? Because I think that, you know, many people that suffer, you know, I can I can tell you that my brother was suffering with Parkinson's disease and his long-term girlfriend left him and it pretty much ended his life. And of course, you know, it did end his life. And then of course, the trauma that we all suffer around that, you know, it's something dealing with death and dealing with sickness and dealing with injury. The people around you suffer so much. And it's, there are different stages of grief, as you say. And it's, you know, it's acceptance, it's anger, it's, it's sadness. I mean, there's, there's just many, many different stages. So how did you manage to hold that intimate relationship together with your husband? And is it an ongoing process? It absolutely is. And I would be lying if I said it wasn't extraordinarily difficult. Mm. And I was in so much pain for so long. I was just trying to get through the day. And everybody was coming to the house, checking on me. And my husband reacted differently. He was angry. He was not at me. He was angry about the crash. Mm. He was angry that his life had been turned upside down. And Mm -hmm. 
he went from trying to start his own business to full-time trying to keep my medicines full and, mm-hmm. and you know, keep me in my wheelchair and take me to physical therapy every single day. And we really struggled to give each other what we needed. I just couldn't bear to hear him rant about Amtrak. But that's what he needed to do. And I was just sad. I, I was just mm-hmm. sad. And he couldn't understand why I didn't share his passion and his mm-hmm. anger. And it got really hard. There came mm-hmm. a time where, and I have to tell you, we really resented each other mm-hmm. and said terrible things to each other. Mm-hmm. And now we realize that that was normal, given the stress we were under. But boy, was it tough yeah. at the time. Yeah. And did you seek therapy for him? We sought therapy together as a couple. And I also recognized that I needed more help and I needed to be a little more creative about my own mental health. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had everything that Western medicine had to give me. <laughs> yeah, every pill. You know, in terms of yeah. <laughs> massive, massive <laughs> amounts of every opioid you've ever heard of, and some you probably haven't, and every medical intervention. But, you know, I needed to open myself up to different ways of healing and quieting my mind. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it took time. I think time mm-hmm. sanded down those rough edges and those resentments that we were building up against each other. Mm-hmm. And we're in a wonderful place now. We'll, we'll celebrate mm-hmm. 25 years in the fall. Wow. Well, that's just amazing. What a, what an incredible story. And I think the there's so many ties between mental health and and accidents and trauma and, and just health in general. You know, when you're not healthy, it affects absolutely everything. And mental health is still, there's so much stigma attached to it. And I even was like, trying to choose my words when I was asking you that question about therapy. And then I was like, well, why am I trying to do that? Like mental health is, it's it's like taking contraception or, or going for a checkup. It's your brain health. And it's completely normal that you will have struggled with this. And with depression and anxiety, it has to be treated because otherwise it ends in disaster. It's really true. And it took me a while to learn that. Mm. I was always somebody I just figured I could muscle through it, right? Mm. Uh, You know, Mm. just study harder, just work harder, try harder in rehab. You know, I I was going to get back on my feet. And I wasn't until I really started studying trauma and and because I was so frustrated with myself because I hadn't made all of those unrealistic goals I'd set for myself Mm -hmm, (laughs) and I mm -hmm. wanted to understand why. Mm. And when I really started understanding that connection between physical health, between massive injury, between pain and what it does, it really changes your brain. There are Mm -hmm. biochemical reasons Mm-hmm. why people get depressed after trauma, mm-hmm. why you get PTSD. Mm-hmm. And understanding that helped me deal with my own stigma yeah. about, you know, maybe I'm just not strong enough. It's like, no, this is normal. Mm-hmm. This is normal. And I think that was super important for me. And then starting to take control and saying, okay, what can I do about it? Mm-hmm. You know, my my mother suffered horribly with bipolar at least we think it was bipolar because she refused to get help. And the effects that that had on her family, myself, my brother, my father, were extreme. And 
you know, I have friends now who are bipolar and they take a little pill every day and it smooths it out and it makes it manageable because, you know, mental health doesn't just affect you, it affects the people around you. And I'm really, really passionate about it having, you know, suffered so much in my own family. I bet you have a whole new appreciation for pharmaceuticals now, right, Geraldine? <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I just am in awe of what really the healthcare workers and and the skilled surgeons and the doctors. I, I like I said, you know, by the numbers, you look at the injuries I'd had. A lot of them have very low survival rates, much less when you have all those injuries all together at the same time. And mm-hmm. so, I, I do, I, I really appreciate. The folks that found me quickly, that kept me alive, that put me back together and um, helped me get back on my feet quite literally. Now, I have known you probably for about 15 years now. We first worked together with your team on Merck for Mothers. We were, as you know, one of the implementers of the program at PSI. And you've always struck me as, you know, a very optimistic, outgoing leader. You know, you worked in public policy at Merck and you were an executive there, also of corporate responsibility. So this fell under you. But I've seen a shift in you now since this accident happened and you seem so happy. And I'm wondering if that has anything to do with the trauma that you went through and how grateful and optimistic you are now about the future and the work that you're doing. What what have you learned from this accident? One of, I've learned so much, but one of the biggest things is that I believe I am much more intentional about how I spend my time Yeah, and the things I choose to worry about and the things I choose to let go. And I probably thought that I was that way before, but after such a searing experience, you just don't have time for things that don't matter or people that bring you down or things that are silly. Before I might have agonized about an email that I sent to, you know, where I hit send too soon. Now I'm like, oh, what? (laughs) Not going to kill me. And and no is a full sentence, right? It's, exactly. No is a full sentence. Yeah, and I have absolutely gone through the same process with my trauma, with losing my brother and the way that I lost him. And I feel the same way now about we're at midlife. We have a whole future ahead of us. And it's about what springs joy now and making the right decisions. And, and again, what you say, what to spend our time on. I, I literally, at this stage of the game... I will not do anything unless I feel like it's having an impact or if it's springing joy. And I think that's a great way to live your life. And I'm I'm so happy to hear you say that. Life is too short, as you well know. <laughs> it could have gone the other way. Now, talking now about today, you have uh, broken away from Merck and you are at the head of a new organization called Organon. Tell us about your new job and 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 what it's like with this new exciting challenge of of growing this six billion dollar company. You know, it's been an incredible journey and an incredible opportunity. I promised myself when I finally did go back to work, I had a lot of people asking me, why why are you going back to work? You know, after what you've been through, and I said, because I believe in what I do. You know, I, 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 you do. I always joke that 
Yeah. Maybe if I worked for a chair company, I might say, you know what? There's enough chairs in the world. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. you know, when you work for a healthcare company and at Merck, you're curing cancer and at Organon, yeah. we are all about women's health. I love it. And those are mm-hmm. things that I am passionate about yeah. and yeah. I can have an impact. So yeah. we spun out of Merck. I, I talk about us. We are basically a startup at scale. Yeah. We've got almost 10,000 employees around the world. Uh-huh. We're an S&P 500 company. We rang the opening bell when we went public on the New York Stock Exchange, mm-hmm. but we're brand new mm-hmm. in many ways. Mm-hmm. We've got mm-hmm. great products, contraceptives, fertility, mm-hmm. lots of products for different for, for women in different life stages, mm-hmm. and much more in the pipeline. We're committed to developing new drugs to meet women's unmet needs, mm-hmm. so many conditions, endometriosis, mm-hmm. terrible menopause symptoms, mm-hmm. polycystic ovary syndrome, preterm labor, postpartum hemorrhage. We've got new products for all of those that mm-hmm. we are developing. Mm-hmm. And our mission is to get them to the women that need it. Yeah, And this yeah. is something that's just so exciting. It's really a privilege. Yeah. To yeah. be part of a company with that as its mission. Yeah. And I, I, as you know, I follow you closely and I see the incredible work that you're doing. And, you know, with everything that's going on right now uh, in the U.S. and globally with access to much needed healthcare for women, your work is needed more than anything. But let's just take a step back for a second, because I do love what we did at Merck together and tell the listeners a little bit about it just briefly. We developed a program called Merck for Mothers. And, you know, one of the biggest issues in the world is when women go to give birth, they do not have the necessary midwife or a gynecologist at hand. And often they are giving birth unassisted. And one of the products that we developed was a birthing kit. And in that birthing kit, it cost about $5 to buy. You could essentially give birth under a tree with limited assistance with a plastic sheet, some soap, two drugs to help with hemorrhaging and infection that you just wipe on and a knife to cut the umbilical cord. I mean, how incredible is that as a legacy for something that you did, Geraldine, that we did and getting it out to hundreds of millions of women around the world and setting up a sustainable system within the healthcare industry that delivers to low-income women. I mean, that to me, you know, I love the simplicity of it and, you know, finding winning solutions and, and getting behind innovation is now what you do at, at Organon, where you head up all the philanthropy, you head up corporate so- social responsibility, and your focus on girls and women could not be more timely with everything that is going on right now. And I think there's a lot of frustration out there where there is a clear bias towards women and having control of their own bodies. And the thing that Organon really is helping families do out there is is have control, preventing teenage pregnancy, giving access to contraception, and so much more. And I get frustrated when I hear people diss pharmaceutical companies because of the bad, right? But, you know, you've always been in charge of the good. And, oh, we just need more people like you out there, Geraldine, who who <laughs> approach this in a way that's innovative. You fill gaps, you test out new theories, you build systems, you're looking at systems change. So tell us more about, about that side of your work. 
Sure, it's it, it's a pleasure. And you're right that the unmet needs out there for women, certainly in terms of reproductive health, maternal health, but more broadly, you know, that they that they be treated holistically and that some of these conditions for which there have been no new developments for decades deserve the attention. Women Mm -hmm. deserve better. And you're exactly right. We already knew in the United States that there was a tremendous unmet need, Mm -hmm. especially in some socioeconomically disadvantaged populations in many rural areas for reliable access to the most modern and effective kinds of birth control. Yep. We knew that many, many couples struggle to have the family of their choice mm-hmm. and need access to IVF treatments. Yeah. Many, many, so many wonderful families have been created that way. Mm-hmm. And we know that the U.S. has one of the worst, if not the worst, I believe, rate of maternal mortality in the developed world. Yeah. And it's yeah. been going up. Which is outrageous. Yep. So no reason the for fact it. that we have products that can address those issues, that just drives me because yeah. there's a lot we can't control. But one thing women can do, and we can help them do that, is take charge of the contraception of their own fertility journey mm-hmm. and try to do everything they can to have a safe birth mm-hmm. if that is their choice. Mm-hmm. No, that is absolutely fantastic. And we do know that 250 million women uh, around the world want access to contraception and cannot get it. And that is something that that you and I are looking at partnering up on with our efforts. And it's not just about access to the pill or access to the injection or, you know, access to the patch. It's about offering methods that suit the family and their lifestyle. And, you know, we've got some incredible new technology now that really helps families to get that access. But, and also in the United States, some of the communities where we both work, it's like being in a developing country. Parts of Washington, D.C., parts of Arizona, on the border, in the border towns, there is very limited access to the healthcare. And basically, it's inadequate. So thank you for that work that you are doing. No, thank you. One, one other thing I'd love to say is, you know, outside the U.S., we recently came out with a set of public commitments mm-hmm. just last month. And one of them is that we will directly help to prevent over 120 million unintended pregnancies by 2030. We have a partnership with UNFPA and the Gates Foundation where we're going to distribute over 100 million products for very low cost in the 69 poorest countries around the world. Wow. And just as you point out, you know, it's one thing to have a range of products, and I'm certainly not promoting any single one. Women ought to have choices, Mm -hmm. options Mm -hmm. that work for them and their family. Mm -hmm. But they also need information to make those choices, Mm -hmm. to know what those full range of options are. So, you know, there's a product piece, but the information and education piece is really important too. And and I think it's also important to point out that, you know, you and I have worked many, 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 gosh, decades in the developing world. And it really is about, it's about access and and filling the discrepancies and the gaps that exist and also building a long-term delivery solution that's not, you know, 
giving stuff away for free. The private sector has a really important role to play in making sure that families have access to the products and services that they need and the education, as you say. Those three things are really, really important. And, you know, public-private partnerships, like, you know, that's what we talk about nonstop when we go to Davos and a lot of these meetings together. And they are what needs to happen. And, you know, Merck and now Organon have really been a key player in making those partnerships happen and and delivering solutions to the government, which they wouldn't necessarily be aware of. You know, a lot of work that, that I've done around different family planning products and contraceptive products, we've tested out the technology and then we've taken it to the governments and they've adopted that technology and those medical devices within the public sector. But the private sector has a key role and those partnerships between NGOs, between private companies and governments are key. That is the key. I'm building long-term sustainable programs that will, you know, keep evolving, right? As new technology and new products come out that we just add on to the existing infrastructure that's delivering this healthcare. A hundred percent. Nobody can do it alone. Mm-hmm. And and nobody should, should be so vain as to think they can. Yeah. <laughs> we really, you know, this is such a challenging issue. But the positive side of that is the potential that is unleashed. You know, I I think of it like a stone in in a pond. You keep a woman healthy. You keep a mother healthy. You know these statistics. Her children are more likely to be well-fed. They're more likely to finish school. She's more likely to be productive, whether at home or outside Mm -hmm. in the community. There's an incredible ripple effect, really, on the whole society And as governments appreciate this, this is not welfare. This is not charity. This is an investment in the future of your country. Yeah. And and that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what balances out. I think sometimes we can get bogged down and sad (laughs) about how great the need is. But the potential, if we do this right, is absolutely tremendous. Yeah. Well, we are so lucky to have you. Geraldine, as a leader in this space, we are very happy that you survived and have made a remarkable recovery. Again, I would encourage everyone to look up the book, Bone by Bone, I presume it's on Amazon, and people can find it there. And Geraldine, thank you for sharing your story. You really are just one of the most remarkable women I think I've ever met. And I hope we I hope we're soon out of a job together, right? Of changing the world for girls and women. I hope that we're out of that a job. That would be a soon. beautiful dream. A yeah. beautiful dream. We'll go sit by the beach, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, sit by my pool, drink some cocktails. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you so much for the chance to share my stories. I truly believe there is power in story. Oh, so I really sure. appreciate everything you're doing to, to share the stories of other women and other leaders and how they're reaching out and helping others. Well, thank you again for being on the show, Jarlene. Back at you. <laughs> thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. 
please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code PODCAST10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.